0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome to BIEB 152, Lecture 5 on Natural Selection. So first, as we start every lecture, I want to take the temperature of the current pandemic that we're going through. Last lecture, we talked about how in California, the the spread of COVID-19 no longer appeared to be exponential, that it was consistently um, spreading still. New people were getting sick, but the rate at which it was spreading was not increasing through time, such as exponential growth. So we're going to talk a lot about exponential growth uh, today. It's kind of ironic that the lecture on exponential growth Uh, is occurring in a period where the disease appears not to be expanding exponentially, but thank goodness that it no longer is. And so that was the case on Thursday for California. How about the the whole United States? Does it appear that the disease is spreading exponentially still? And I have to say, we've looked at this figure many times from the New York Times, and um, it appears that it is not spreading exponentially anymore. It is still spreading. New people are getting sick. Uh, about 30,000 new cases per day, which is still a lot. We have not solved this problem. However, this the fact that the number of new cases per day has not increased in the last week or so, that it's always hovering around 30,000 new cases per day, uh, tells us that it is not just this bomb that's exploding and, and spreading and spreading and spreading, that it's slowing down in the things, the, the important part, The the changes in our behavior are what's causing this thing to stop spreading. We don't have technology yet to stop COVID-19. What we have is changes in behavior. We have isolation by distance. And so this is showing us that that change in behavior is actually working. So we have to keep doing it until we have better ways of monitoring the spread of the disease and quarantining people, or if we have treatments for the disease, or hopefully eventually soon, a um, A vaccine for the disease, so what 's happening at the level of the the world? Uh, it also appears that at the level of the world, there is a a slowing down of the rate of increase through time so it's it 's basically the same number of cases per day, but that 's not growing it 's not exponential uh, so that 's good news but as as this disease moves into new new countries, um, we could start to see an uptick again. When this disease first spread uh, in China, we saw this exponential increase and then it, it plateaued off. Um, and then once it spread to Europe and then to North America, um, we got this huge expansion of the of the disease. So hopefully we're we're out of this exponential increase phase. But really, we have to think at a smaller scale than than the world. And I would even argue a smaller scale, the United States. That we have to be thinking more lo- more about what's happening at the at the local level, and so here's a graph of what's happening uh, as of yesterday at the local level. This is also from the New York Times, uh, and it's obviously just a map of the United States. And um, there's coloring in the in different regions of the map uh, that indicate whether or not the disease or how fast the disease is expanding. Um, how many days does it take to go from you know, one individual to two individuals to four individuals and so forth. Um, and uh, that um, the number of days there is uh, indicated by the, the, the coloration on the map. Um, and what we can see is that our country is a sort of patchwork of different communities. And these different communities have different rates at which the disease is spreading. Um, and so some places it's scary, it's spreading very quickly. In other places, it's, it's much slower. If we zoom into San Diego County, we can see that it is expanding here, uh, but that it's expanding much slower than uh, many places. Um, and uh, so that's, that's a, that's a pretty good sign. I have to say in general, California has not seen that sort of rapid rapid expansion that uh, say New York state or even Michigan has seen in some other places. So um, we're lucky for that. It's partly due to us changing our behavior Sooner than other places, it's probably also due to many other features that are out of out of our control, so it's partly good due to us, but probably mostly uh, other forces are out of our control so if we We can also look at this table that describes dynamics of the disease in different regions in California, and so this just strikes home at the message that we really have to think about the dynamics happening you know through so the spread through time. Uh, but also think about um, where how these are different in different regions. Um, and you can see that you know, different regions of California had their, their peak earlier um, or later, I should say, for San Diego than some of the other places. Um, and in San Diego, you can see that we had um, lots and lots of increase of expansion uh, early on, but that's died down, especially as we've started to socially distance ourselves. Um, When we look at Los Angeles, we see that there is actually sort of these multiple peaks in the rate. Um, And uh, this tells me probably that when we draw a circle around Los Angeles, that Los Angeles is so big and there's so many different communities that we're probably capturing independent dynamics happening in different communities and we're kind of averaging across them and blurring our picture of what is actually happening with the spread of disease. So even Los Angeles probably has multiple different dynamics going under, going on in different regions. And so really to understand what's happening with a disease, you have to hone into those smaller, smaller regions. Um, the fluctuations are just one region peak here, one region peak there, one region peak there, likely. Um, and you can, you can also see sort of similar dynamics for other, other areas. Okay, so the bottom line is in going into the future, we're going to have to um, take this sort of more regional perspective to understand what's happening with the disease. Um, And um, our social distancing is working and we have to keep at it to keep um, this growth rate uh, from increasing again. So we are gonna be in this for the long haul, uh, but we know how to protect ourselves and to limit the spread of this disease And so we're just going to have to do it. Okay, now getting to lecture number five, uh, natural selection. The goals of this lecture are to um, discuss the distribution of fitness effects. Okay, what does that mean? Well, basically, so far in the lecture, we've talked about neutral mutations. Those are mutations that have no fitness effect. Um, But now we're going to talk about what happens to mutations if they're deleterious? Or what happens to mutations if they're beneficial? These mutations, natural selection can see, and it can favor the beneficial ones, and it can get rid of the deleterious ones. And so we're gonna focus on just, you know what is, what is that variation in fitness effects? Uh, and then we'll, we're gonna hone in on how we can use that information to predict evolution. So we'll first discuss examples, sorry. First we'll discuss examples of microbial adaptation under controlled laboratory conditions, microbes are really great in that they have short generation times, so they they double you know within minutes or hours um, and so because of that, we can actually see them evolve in action in the laboratory. We can perform controlled experiments where we can test um, whether how different factors influence their evolution and so it 's just a really ideal way to study. Um, uh, evolution, and also it's great because you know if we're trying to understand the evolution of infectious disease diseases, they're caused by microbes, and we can really get a very detailed picture of how microbes evolve by running these lab experiments. So the course will u- will use a lot of data generated in these lab experiments to understand the evolutionary process of microbes, and then to be able to interpret what's happening out in the real world. Okay. We'll learn how to quantify the strength of natural selection, that's called fitness. Um, We'll learn how to use fitness estimates to predict evolution. And then the last two sections of the lecture are designed to integrate what we've learned about selection with what we've learned about neutral genetic drift, um, and integrate what we've learned about selection with what we've learned about uh, mutation rates. And so those are, we're gonna look at some computer simulations and also an equation that relates all of these different variables together. Okay, not all mutations are created equally. So far in the class, we have studied neutral mutations. Let's think about neutral mutations in the context of this histogram. So what is in this graph? we have fitness effects on the x-axis, and on the y-axis, we have number of mutations. And so the the neutral mutations um, have no effect on fitness, and that has a value of one on this axis. So I'll describe why the value of one is no, no effect in a second. So what this graph is gonna show us are basically you can think of um, a population of E. coli that have each of the genomes has exactly one mutation in it. And so some of these E. coli are going to have deleterious mutations and be down here. And some of the E. coli are going to have beneficial mutations and be up here. Um, And so the y-axis is just saying, well, how many of them have neutral mutations? How many of them have deleterious mutations? How many of them have actual beneficial mutations? And so it's just an accounting of what are the the variety of fitness effects of all the mutations that can occur in a genome. The reason why that value of one is there is that um, fitness on this axis is equal to how fast the mutant grows divided by how fast the wild type grows. So if the mutant has no effect on the phenotype of the the bacteria and it doesn't affect how fast it grows, then it's going to have exactly the same growth rate as the ancestor or the wild type uh, bacteria. And so it's going to equal one. However, if the the mutation um, causes the, bacteria to grow faster, the, the one with the mutant, then it'll have, this is considered a beneficial mutation, and it'll be somewhere along this region of the, the axis. However, if that mutation is deleterious, so mutations are often thought to um, be bad, they can cause cancer in humans, uh, and they can have deleterious effects in viruses or deleterious effects in bacteria, and so they will occur um, somewhere in this region. And so, um, this is just a hypothetical distribution of fitness effects. Um, this is what I would expect them to be. So where there's just a subset that are beneficial, um, there's a lot of them that are neutral, so a lot of ways to change the genome in synonymous sites or in um, pseudogenes or in other pieces of DNA that don't matter, um, you know, those mutations won't have any effect, and they'll fall into this category. Um, there'll be a bunch that are negative, and then there's going to be lots of ways to just completely break the genome. And so when you completely break the cell or break the genome, um, then it has a really strongly deleterious effect. And so that, that is represented by this huge uh, increase in the number of mutations that are severely deleterious. Okay, so that was our hypothesis, but this is an actual Uh, data set from 2007. Uh, This is on a a virus uh, where they're able to introduce lots and lots of mutations into the genome, have all of these different genotypes with just one mutation, uh, and then assess the fitness of the virus. Uh, So how well does the ancestor do relative to the um, evolved virus? Uh, Not evolved, but just, I mean, it is evolved in the sense that it has just one mutation. Uh, So the mutant virus to the ancestor, and um, what we find is that, yeah, there's some ways to improve the virus, um, but very few mutations are actually beneficial. Uh, lots of mutations are neutral, and then there is this tail where, you know, lots of mutations are deleterious, and then there's many mutations that completely wipe out the virus's ability to grow. And so those are those are deadly mutations that are severely deleterious. So our hypothesis of what this should look like does. Um, bear out in at least this data. What I should say is that this is the distribution of fitness effects for this virus. Each genome is gonna have a slightly different um, distribution of fitness effects, and the the distribution is also influenced by the environment that the organism is in. And so when we think about adaptation, we think about uh, an organism evolving to be better at exploiting the environment it's adapting too. And so normally we think of organisms as being really well adapted to their environments. And so for instance, SARS-CoV-2 should be well adapted to bats. But now SARS-CoV-2 is in a completely different environment in humans. And so it likely has much more room now to improve. And so the way that you can visualize that shifting in the environment and how it might influence this distribution here is that basically this one probably gets shifted down and there becomes many new ways um, to improve the virus so that it can better infect humans. And so these distributions are a function of the genome, you know, the specific organism, but also the environment that that organism is in. And if that organism is really good at its environment, then there's going to be few ways to improve it. But if that organism is poor in the environment, then you're going to have a huge tail where it has lots of room to improve. Um, okay, so we'll get into more of those details later Later in the lecture. Before I really get into adaptive evolution, I actually want to play this video um, that's by one of my colleagues, Michael Bame, um, and he did this in Roy Koshone's lab at Harvard Medical School where it is this enormous petri dish. And uh, they they have this continuous footage of, this, of bacteria spreading on this enormous petri dish. And as the bacteria is spreading, there's features in the way that it spreads where you can actually see evolution and see adaptation happening in action. So a lot of times people have a hard time believing in evolution because they can't really see it. It happens over a long time period. But with microbes and with this video, you can actually see adaptation happening. So if you have any in-laws or relatives or friends that don't believe in evolution, show them this, explain what's happening, and uh, they can actually see it uh, for themselves. Okay, so I'm gonna show this. It'll give us an idea of um, how evolution of these microbial populations, what it
1: actually looks like. So what we ended up building was basically a Petri dish except that it's two feet by four feet. And the way we set it up is that there are nine bands, and at the base of each of these bands, we put a normal Petri dish thick agar with different amounts of antibiotic. On the outside, there's no antibiotic. Just in from that, there's barely more than the E. coli can survive. Inside of that, there's 10 times as much a hundred times and then finally the middle band has a thousand times as much antibiotic and then across the top of it pour some thin agar that bacteria can move around in the background is black because there's ink in it and the bacteria appear as white first you see they spread in the area where there's no antibiotic up until the point they can no longer survive then a mutant appears on the right It's resistant to the antibiotic, it spreads, until it starts to compete with other mutants around it. When these mutants hit the next boundary, they too have to pause and develop new mutations to make it into 10 times as much antibiotic. And then you see the different mutants repeat this at 100 And after about 11 days, they finally make it into 1,000 times as much antibiotic as the wild type can survive. And so we can see by this process of accumulating successive mutations that bacteria which are normally sensitive to an antibiotic can evolve resistance to extremely high concentrations in a short period of time.
0: Um, I love that video. You can see how these bacteria are spreading. Um, you can see how they're adapting to their environment, how they can overcome these barriers, these challenges of increased antibiotic. Um, and you can just see you know, evolution actually happening. Um, and I have to apologize that my lectures don't uh, have EDM, like this cool video. Um, it is amazing. So uh, I wanted to focus on a few features that you can see as these uh, microbes are evolving. And the first thing I wanna focus on are these relative fan sizes. So these fans are actually just showing us how good a particular genotype of bacteria is at growing. And when fans intersect with each other, um, one bacteria will actually sort of push out another bacteria and you can visually see one genotype being able to outcompete another genotype the one that's winning is of course the one that's most likely to spread into the next uh the next level of antibiotics and spread throughout the the um this giant petri dish and so um i want to focus in on you know the dynamics that are happening on the plate here you can see these sort of fan structures um throughout the plate uh, but we'll focus in on what's happening here and what, and I, I want to clarify the things that I just said. So um, what I've done is just highlighted that there was a mutant that occurred about here in the Petri dish. Um, and it allowed it to spread into the next uh, regime of antibiotics. And it, this mutation um, allowed the bacteria to actually grow pretty well. So there, usually there's a fitness cost for uh, evolving antibiotic resistance, um, but this one actually doesn't seem to have paid much of a cost at all, and it's growing really well. Um, and we can highlight a couple other mutants that arose at the same time and were spreading, but they haven't spread as, as far. So we see a fan that's here that's clearly being uh, swamped out by this red fan um, and suggesting that this has a, a, a lower um, growth rate and isn't able to spread as well. Here's another one that's being swamped out by blue and blue is being swamped out by red Um, and so you can see these competitive dynamics playing out and certainly you know where they all started at uh, at the same number a single cell at this point um now uh later on in the experiment you know this red is contributing much more than there's no individuals from this orange and so this is showing us you know survival of the fittest and whoever grows the fastest Makes it to the next edge, and likely will mutate again to have even higher um, higher resistance to antibiotics. And so, this is the type of fitness and selection that I'm going to talk about today. This competition for resources, where uh, mutants gain the ability to grow faster and faster, sequester more and more of the resources, and um, will outcompete and supplant. other genotypes, the ancestral genotype that don't have these beneficial mutations. Next lecture, we're going to talk about the evolution of antibiotic resistance, which resistance mutations are adaptive mutations, um, and they're very similar to the types of adaptations that we're going to talk about today, but they're also different in a way because they allow the bacteria to grow in an environment where the bacteria wasn't able to grow at all. And so this is a major transformation. You could think of the first class of mutations just getting better and better at growing um, as being kind of soft natural selection. And these mutations that allow you to begin to grow where you couldn't grow at all before as being really hard selection, very strong selection for for those mutations. Uh, Because of this difference in the strength, they they behave differently. Uh, So the math today is mostly gonna be applied to just the run-of-the-mill mutations that um, improve your ability to compete with other genotypes and improve, their, improve your growth rate. So they're the fan next time on Thursday, we will talk about these, these uh, antibiotic resistance mutations. Before we move on, I wanna take this opportunity because it was a clip in the video where they showed this phylogeny, they they constructed the evolutionary relationships between bacteria that were isolated in different regions of the petri dish. So each point is a single bacteria that they isolated and sequenced its genome, um, and then given the the genomes of points nearby, they can construct an evolutionary relationship and actually construct the trajectory that you know a single lineage of bacteria took. And so this one, you know, made it across the first um, barrier, but actually never made it across the second barrier. It was overcome by descendants from this lineage that had um, uh, spread faster and gained higher levels of antibiotic resistance faster and pushed out this lineage here. And so evolution is this process of your accumulating mutations and these lineages are competing with each other um, and then eventually Um, Certain lineages end up winning out, and even this lineage died off, whereas these ones went on to acquire the highest level of resistance. Um, I wanted to show this and point this out because it it helps you get a feel for how evolution works and how these phylogenies form through time. Um, We're going to be looking at a lot of phylogenies um, and interpreting the the, um, progress of diseases across the globe or through hospitals. Um, And so I think this helps you just get an intuition for how these phylogenies develop and then how we can use them to reconstruct um, the path of uh, a disease. Certainly this phylogeny is very similar to the SARS-CoV-2 on nextstrain.org where um, uh, they're also tracking the the SARS-CoV-2 in different regions of the world Uh, reconstructing their evolutionary relationships and then deducing their pathway. It's the same exact kind of logic that was used to to build this as those really complex phylogenies uh, for SARS-CoV-2. I just wanted to take a second to talk about this phrase that I keep using, lineage. Lineage in biology is like how we use um, lineage in common language for when we describe human lineages. It is a series of organisms, population cells or genes connected by a continuous line of descent from ancestor to descendant um, so that this is a lineage here um, and the overall re- evolutionary relationships described by this diagram um, that diagram is called a phylogeny and we will go over these things much more later in the in the term okay so while I love that giant Uh, Petri dish, and you can actually see evolution in action. Um, I think the best example of a study uh, using microbes to uh, in monitoring their evolution um, is with E. coli performed by Richard Lenski. He's run this experiment for thirty years, and he has seen over seventy thousand generations of evolution in his experiment. Um, over 10,000 transfers. We'll talk about what a transfer is in a second. But basically, he's observed E. coli evolving in test tubes in a lab for a very long time, Uh, and he has this amazing resource of, you know, what does evolution look 10,000 generations in, 20,000 generations in, 30,000, all the way up to 70,000. So the experiment is still ongoing. Um, There's a caveat there that I'll talk about in a second. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's this, this, uh, amazing study to, to figure out what long-term evolution looks like, not just the first sets of mutations, but, you know, when you have hundreds of mutations, how, how is evolution different than when you just have a few mutations? Okay. So the way that he runs his experiment is that he took E. coli, they're isogenic means that means that they had no mutations and he plopped them into a flask. The flask has 10 millimet- milliliters of liquid that has nutrients in it for the E. coli to grow. The E. coli grow for 24 hours, and then he takes 1% of this mixture and um, and puts it into a new flask and allows the E. coli to grow, and then he does that the next day, and the next day, and the next day for 30 years. He's transferred many of them, but also other people in his lab helped transfer the experiment Richard is my um, PhD advisor and so I I had a role in transferring this experiment as well. Um, So I have to say that this is an ongoing experiment but at the moment he had to put push pause on the experiment. Um, This experiment has been transferred during the middle of blizzards um, and also other bad weather but this COVID-19 has caused us all to shut down our labs and to work from home Um, and Rich was one of the first people that was pointing out that this is going to be a really bad epidemic uh, slash pandemic. Uh, He was right, and he shut down his experiment safely, Um, and so luckily for this experiment, um, you can take the cells and freeze them at minus 80 degrees Celsius, and the cells um, actually remain viable at minus 80 degrees Celsius, and so he can then take them out of the freezer, put them back into a test tube and continue his experiment at a future date. And so that's what he'll do. Um, But we need to be responsible and social distance and work from home. And so that's the, the experiment is on hold at the moment, but it will live on and um, we'll see what happens after 80,000 and a hundred thousand generations. So this is just a, a figure to say that, um, you can freeze down samples from this experiment, and he has done that um, so you can restart it later. But he's also done it every 500 generations. He calls this his frozen fossil record, which I think is awesome. So it's this record of the history of the evolution of these E. coli from generation zero all the way to the current generations, and he freezes them down every 500 generations. So he has really fine scale resolution on how these E. coli have adapted to their lab environment, you should note that E. coli are, are you know, um, grow typically in our guts, um, and so uh, they're not adapted to the lab environment. Even though they can grow in the lab environment, they're not, you know, optimized for lab environment. And so there was a lot of room for the E. coli to improve uh, to growing in these flasks that Rich has observed. So here's our first data on adaptation. In this experiment, uh, and so what are we looking at here? On the x-axis, we have time, uh, and on the y-axis, we have relative fitness. This is the same fitness as the distribution of fitness effects, where a value of one means that uh, the the strain that you're observing doesn't have any fitness difference than the control strain. And the control strain in this experiment is the ancestor. It's the strain that he, pres- that he started the experiment with. He was able to preserve a little bit of that strain in the freezer so that we can always reference back to that strain. Um, and so he runs these, uh, what are called competition experiments that we'll go over in a second. They allow us to measure the relative fitness of um, all of these evolved genotypes compared to the ancestor. This is just a, an experiment where he ran the ancestor against the ancestor. It's around one. Uh, so there's a little bit of error in the estimate. That's why it's a little bit below one. Um, but, you know, ancestor against ancestor gives you a value about one. And then as you isolate um, populations of bacteria that have been given more and more time to adapt to this lab environment, we see that they get better and better at, at growing in that lab environment. Relative to relative to their ancestor, and so uh, there are two different curves on this graph. The first curve, this black curve, is for ancestral mutation rate, and so this is just normal bacteria evolving as they they would um, to this uh, lab environment. However, there's another set of bacteria. So I should have said before that there are 12 replicate flasks that he started the experiment with, and so. This is data from one flask, the ancestral mutation rate data. Um, But there's other flasks where, weirdly, the bacteria was actually able to evolve mutations that increased its mutation rate. So these mutations are typically ones that knock out proofreading gene functions. So like we said, SARS-CoV-2 has a proofreading protein. Um, If you knock that out, then SARS-CoV-2 would have a higher mutation rate. Um, and hopefully that doesn't happen. But that did happen in the bacteria in these experiments, and what we get is an increase in the rate at which this population is adapting. So basically, this population hit the gas pedal on mutations, and some of those mutations are actually beneficial. It got more of them faster, and so its rate of adapting to the lab environment has actually accelerated. So I think that's pretty, pretty cool. Um, And it is an example of, you know, the overall trajectory is adaptation, but you see an effect that the types, the number of mutations and how quick you um, can gain those mutations influences your trajectory for adaptation. So we'll go back at the very end of the lecture into thinking more about natural selection and mutations together. So, um, when Rich started the experiment 30 years ago, uh, technology wasn't what it is now, and he wasn't able to sequence whole genomes of the bacteria and really look at what are the mutational dynamics happening underneath this change in phenotype, change in the relative fitness. But nowadays, and so this is a paper from 2017, um, you are able to sequence whole genomes and get a really fine scale resolution of what are the mutational dynamics happening underneath these phenotypic changes and so that's what this graph is showing us is this is allele frequency and so at time point zero there's there's no mutations but mutations begin to accumulate really rapidly so we have this this um, black mutation here which uh, spreads to the population very rapidly and fixes um, within with a, within a couple hundred generations of the experiment, um, and then you see another mutation. So when this fixes, that means that all the cells in that population have this mutation, and so this second mutation here is occurring within the ge- within a genome that already had the first mutation, and then that second mutation fixes, and so now all the genomes have those two mutations and. Then you get the sort of third mutation beginning to spread and so forth. And you can look at these trajectories um, and see that, you know, lots of mutations are fixing one after another uh, during the course of the experiments. These mutations are driving these increases in the fitness that we see uh, in this figure. So the first thing that I want you to notice is how steep these trajectories are. These are very different than the trajectories we observed for, the simulations of the neutral mutations. Um, that's because these uh, have this fitness benefit, and natural selection drives them to increasing frequency very rapidly in the population into fixation. And so this is this is a dynamic that's more like what you expect for natural selection. You can also see that there's a lot of other mutations occurring in the population that never fix. These are likely beneficial mutations that begin to rise, but as as say this mutation is rising, there's another mutation in another genome um, that's rising and it actually pushes, it's, it's doing so well, that's actually pushing out these mutations. And so eventually the genome fixes that has this black mutation and this light blue mutation, um, and then things kind of reset and new mutations can occur, additional ones, on the background with those, those first two adaptive mutations. So it, I, I have to say when I was uh, your age, I um, would have loved to have been able to see these kinds of dynamics. It wasn't even accessible when I was an undergrad, but now this data is there and it really shows us mutation by mutation how a population adapts. This is another population from that experiment where I, a mutator evolves. So that's a mutation evolved that knocked out proofreading function of DNA replication uh, such that now the mutation rate is much higher and that's why you get this really blurred image of what's going on because there's just so many mutations flooding into the the population. It's much harder to to see these sweeps of, of adaptive mutations in this one. Okay, so how do we measure the fitness benefit of a mutation or how much more fit an evolved genotype is compared to an ancestral mm-hmm. genotype. And these, these evolution experiments give us a really easy way to do that. It's called a competition experiment. Um, and this is how we're going to measure the fitness benefit of mutations. And then we can use that fitness benefit to then predict how long it's going to take until that mutation fixes in the population and transforms that population into this new adapted version of the organism. And so the way that we do this in this experiment is we start out, we do a competition experiment. So the competition is between ancestor and the evolved genotype. So maybe it's evolved after 500 generations or after 50,000 generations, whatever you want. And um, the ancestor is a normal bacteria, whereas the evolved here has a genetic marker. So this is a single mutation in the genome that doesn't have any fitness effect. It's a neutral mutation, but it changes how it grows on a Petri dish so that it turns red rather than a normal colony here. So it does have a phenotypic effect of on this bacteria, but that doesn't matter in this, in this uh, flask environment. And so we can uh, mix them together and see how well they grow, We can distinguish which ones are evolved versus ancestor based on their coloration on a Petri dish and see whether or not that evolved one is growing faster than the ancestor. So you start out a competition experiment where you mix one-to-one or 50-50 of ancestor and evolved. You take a small aliquot of that mixture and you put it onto a Petri dish. This is just the control to make sure that you know how to pipette and that you got 50-50. And then after say, one day of growth, 24 hours, um, you then plate another subsample of the population of bacteria in the flask onto a Petri dish, and you ask whether or not um, the ratio of ancestor to evolved has shifted. So, um, you know, if you find that T equals one, there's no shift in the ratio, then there hasn't been enough time for adaptation. If you find that there's a shift, so that one, maybe one to two, uh, where the evolved E. coli now dominates uh, the population and is more represented on this petri dish, then we know that they've actually adapted to this lab environment, given the length of time that we allowed them to adapt. Um, If there's a two to one shift, then Darwin was wrong. Um so there can be a two to there can be a shift so that the evolved one is uh not as good as the ancestor this only happens though in really small population sizes where neutral genetic drift can uh introduce can drive the evolution of deleterious mutations to accumulate in the genomes um this is only in in very special cases where you'll see the the two to one where the evolved one actually has Poorer fitness in general. Darwin was right, and you do see adaptation to the lab environments, and certainly you could see it in that 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 graph that I just showed you of these these trajectories of fitness through time. Okay, so once you have this, um, once you are able to measure the shift in frequency, how do we then translate that shift in frequency um, into a fitness value? Um, and it's not It's not terribly difficult, but it's a little bit tricky. And so what you want for fitness here, um, and so fitness is going to be W, um, and we're going to estimate the fitness of the evolved relative to the ancestor. Um, You could certainly do the fitness of the ancestor relative to the evolved, where you just flip the two. But normally this is our point of reference is how much better is the evolved than the ancestor? And so, um, what we're going to do is we're going to calculate how fast does the evolved grow and how fast does the ancestor grow, and then we just make a ratio, uh, uh, a fraction of those two. Um, and so, what is tricky is calculating the growth rate. It's not merely adding up how many bacteria have grown here relative that were here. Um, you actually have to calculate. A exponential growth rate and so that exponential growth rate is r and r will equal ln of the number of cells at time point 1 divided by the number of cells at time point 0 and then that's divided by the total time that you gave them to grow and so this is this is a growth rate and I want to get into a little bit more about how exponential growth works and why we have to take the log of it. One thing to note is that uh, with these competition experiments, uh, because both the evolved and the ancestor, they're competing in the same flask and they're competing against each other for the same amount of time, um, when you're calculating relative fitness here, this W, um, time actually factors out because it's the same and the numerator and the denominator. And so you just have to worry about making this, um, this calculation here of the natural log of number of cells at the two different time points. Okay, so what is R? So R is often called absolute fitness. W is relative fitness. R is just how good something can grow. Whereas W is how good it's growing relative to something else. Um, and uh, for our, for what we're talking about today, R is always going to be growth rate. How much faster is this growing than this other thing? Um, the other question I, I, I wanted to, to focus on is why is the natural log of the Why are we looking at the natural log and the, the change in cell numbers? And this is really um, natural log is not not magical. Um, You could use log base two, you could use log base 10. Um, It is uh, just that we have to log transform this data in order to get a rate of exponential growth. So okay, that'll make sense in in a second here. So what is exponential growth? So it's where one one cell gives you two cells, gives you four cells, gives you eight cells, gives you 16 cells, and you can see here that you know, the, the change in the cell number from um, one to two doesn't seem that dramatic, but from eight to 16, that's a huge increase in the number of cells. And that's how exponential work, growth works, where it's a per cell growth rate. And so the more cells you have, the more cells you'll get in the next generation. That makes intuitive sense, but um, it does sort of make the mind do a, a few gymnastics uh, when you're thinking about exponential growth. Um down here is just a table where i've I've given you cell number from one so this is one generation, two generations, three generations. So that's what's recorded here at generation zero. We have one cell and so forth. And then um, here's a calculation that um, you can use to be able to actually calculate um, how many cells you expect after one generation or after four generations. It's just So 2 to the 4 is 16. That's how that table works. Just to give you an idea of how to translate that cartoon into the actual math. Okay. So this is a plot of exponential growth uh, through, through time, growth through time. Um, of an evolved genotype versus an ancestral genotype. The evolved genotype has adapted and has a faster growth rate. And so we see a uh, number of hours on the x-axis and um, number of bacteria on the y-axis. And, you know, you don't see too much action. But then eventually when enough bacterial cells accumulate, you see a lot of action on the y-axis and the population is, is really, really expanding. Um this is true for both of them, but it is much more dramatic for the evolved because it has a faster rate of growth. So when we look at this plot, um, it's hard to really assess how different the growth rates are, and that's that's because sort of if you look at this change of density from here to here, that's enormous in that same amount of time it's not that big. Um, between these two however um, if you were to look at sort of earlier time points in the experiment you know the change from this time point to that time point is not very big and from this time point to that time point is not very big and so it 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 gives you it it, it's hard to really estimate well what's really that different between these certainly i know there's a enormous difference because of how different these values are at 10 hours but you know, how do I actually quantify that? And the answer is that all you have to do is log transform the the bacterial densities. And when you log transform the bacterial densities, so this is now not a linear uh, graph but a log graph where you go from 1 to – not from 1 to 2, but 1 to 10, not 2 to 3, but 10 to 100, and so forth – then exponential growth on this axis, axis looks um, linear, so it's a log-linear uh, relationship, and so this is the this is a transformation that now you just get a slope of a line, and that slope of the line relates to the growth rate of the ancestor. And we can see that the slope of the line for the ancestor is. Um, is not as steep as a slope of line for the evolved, and that difference in the in the trajectories uh, describes the difference in their growth rates so this is when we're when we're calculating exponential growth basically what we're doing is log transforming the data so that we can get these slopes of the line so we can compare these slopes why um, why we why that's so important in part is um, because we know that populations grow exponentially, so we're we're getting at uh, at the sort of underlying biology. Um, but also, it means that if we if we um, transform the data using this log, that we can look at the difference between this time point and that time point, this time point and that time point. And that'll give us the same answer as if we look at the difference between this time point and that time point, this time point and that time point. And so it doesn't matter if we run the experiment for five hours or 10 hours, as long as we make this transformation to the data, then we'll get a consistent relative fitness for evolved versus ancestor. So that point that I was just making is now made in this uh, figure uh, just more directly where I'm estimating uh, the density at these different time points um, and looking at how these deltas of the evolved compared to the deltas of the ancestor. And in this comparison for the deltas during this time period, I would get a value of 2.5. But if for this other comparison of the deltas at this later time point in the experiment, I would get an answer of three. And so your, your results depend on when you actually uh, sampled the experiment. And so that that doesn't make sense. These, these two bacteria have an underlying intrinsic rate of growth. And so the way that we measure those differences can't be dependent on how long you ran the experiment. So when you transform the data um, this way, you can see that the deltas um, comparison at this time point versus time point one are the exact same, give you the exact same value. So I hope that that helps you out but certainly just by looking at these uh slopes and seeing how consistent they are and that this is an underlying growth rate I think is 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 the the main message from from all of this. Okay. So let's go over what ex- the exponential growth equation is. Here's the equation. Um this is many of you guys have taken Chemistry, introductory chemistry, and learned about exponential decay, radioactive decay. This is the exact same equation as radioactive decay, except it doesn't have a negative value here. It has a positive r. It's not decaying; it's actually growing, and so that's why it's positive. Um, in this equation, in radio radioactive decay, you're looking at the number of um, the counts of the number of a particular isotope. Here, you're looking at the number of cells and the number of uh, viral particles or, or so forth. And so you this equation predicts the number of cells in the future based on the current number of cells, based on how much they grow and the time that they take to grow. So N is the number of cells. E is just uh, the constant, E. Um, R is the growth rate. And T is the time. So um, before, we, uh, I gave you the equation for R, um, and then we compared R's to get to uh, fitness, relative fitness. Here, now that we have the exponential growth equation, I want to uh, solve for R so you can see how you get, go from this equation to actually that calculation of R. And so what we do here is just simple, simple algebra. We divide by n at time point zero. you have to log transform this ratio with a natural log to get rid of the e, and then you have to divide by time. and so then you get r equals this divided by time. So this is the growth rate, um, but this is also called the Malthusian parameter, and I point this out. Uh, because Malthus was an economist who described exponential growth and described, described the problem of exponential growth in that um, the, the growth that we tend to see in farming is linear, whereas the growth in human populations can be exponential. And so eventually you'll hit a problem where you don't have enough food for all of, all of the people that are, are, are or all the populations that are expanding. Um, He pointed this out, and um, Darwin started to think about this. So Darwin was inspired by an economist, and Darwin thought, huh, this is how nature is as well, that each organism has the potential to expand exponentially, but there's limited resources, so they must fight for those limited resources. And that struggle for existence combined with genetic variation in how well you fight and how, how well you struggle, I guess, Um, um, uh, can lead to evolution by natural selection. So this is a really great case where, uh, you know, Darwin was thinking about this economics research and thinking about uh, human populations and applying it to what happens in nature as well. So interdisciplinary research is definitely very powerful and can advance our understanding of a particular field and certainly evolutionary biology. Okay. So back to equations and nuts and bolts and describing selection and fitness. Um, there is a, a variable called selection coefficient. It is very similar to relative fitness. You can see that it has all of the same nuts and bolts. You know, the R of the evolved, the R of the ancestor. Um, but it's a, it's a different um, way of using those nuts and bolts um, to get at a slightly different variable. Um, And so what selection coefficient is, is how much better a mutation or how much better a evolved genotype is compared to its ancestor. So like, um, say it's easy to understand for a single mutation. This is the fitness benefit that you can ascribe to that single mutation. This is not the overall fitness of the organism, but is the fitness ascribed um, by that that beneficial mutation. This I I won't talk too much about um, during these lectures and during the homeworks and 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 midterms and finals, um, but uh, I included here just because if you're reading the literature and you hear the word selection coefficient, I want you to be able to to think through what that is um, and how it relates to relative fitness and how it relates to growth rates. Okay. So now I want to just go through a couple questions so you can see how to use these equations to make calculations. Okay, so to calculate R, it's just take the final density divided by the initial density and divided by the time period. Uh, This is just one generation, and so that simplifies. So it's ln of 100,000, and that's 11.5. Now you have to calculate a couple different growth rates and calculate their relative fitness. Okay, so it's pretty straightforward. The one thing to look out for is, and that's interesting about this calculation, is that if you look at the final density of the ancestor and the final density of the evolved, you might say to yourself, oh, there's more cells of the the ancestor than the evolved and therefore, um, maybe the ancestor is actually more fit than the evolved. But what matters is not the final density. What matters is the change in density through time. And the change in density is much greater for the evolved than for the ancestor. And so that's you use that change in density and you transform with natural log to get growth rate. And that gives you a rate that you can compare apples to apples between the ancestor and the evolved and then get this uh, relative fitness uh, estimate. Okay, calculate the selection coefficient, just using that equation. Okay, so uh, another convenient calculation that we can make using growth rates is this thing called doubling time, okay? In doubling time, what doubling time is, is the time that you go from one cell to two cell, or the time it goes from two cells to four cells, or the time it goes from four cells to eight cells. That's doubling time. It's just a convenient number to be able to calculate, because then it's very easy to use it to predict how many cells you expect to have in the future, and then also to predict evolution by natural selection if an evolved genotype is predicted to have more cells in the future than another genotype. And so here is just how you go from this growth rate equation into this calculation. Here is the doubling time here. So this is T, this should actually be T D for doubling time. Um, But it's just not TD in this, in this equation. That's why it's not changed here. But the, the nomenclature for doubling time is t sub d. So we start with this equation, and then I say, okay, well, doubling time is when you get twice as much of the initial population. And so then this equation is now 2, n sub 0, n sub 0 times this function. So this simplifies so that now we just have 2 equals e to the rt, ln2 equals rt, ln2 divided by R equals T, and so the doubling time is this value here. is can be calculated just by this simple, um, uh, simple calculation of ln 2 divided by R. I walked through the algebra in part because if I would have just if I just look at this equation here, it actually intuitively doesn't make sense to me that um, this is what the doubling time should equal, um, but it is. When you follow the algebra, it does make sense. So ln two divided by r equals the doubling time. So you can have the doubling time of the evolved one or the doubling time of the ancestor. If you calculate these two things, it helps you understand how they're growing differently, and you can use them to predict evolution into the future. How the evolved is going to dominate over the ancestor, and how fast that uh, that that prominence is going to to So um, once we have the doubling times, we can actually write out an equation down here that allows us to predict the frequency of an evolved genotype at a certain point in time. So remember, a big part of why we're learning all of this evolutionary biology is so that we can make predictions about evolution so that we can anticipate uh, evolution in infectious diseases, and hopefully stop it before it becomes a problem. Okay, so this is another example of how we can predict evolution. I don't uh, require that you sort of walk through all of this different math, um, but basically, what I started out with this equation and then transformed it into this equation where we can plug in three different values in order to predict the frequency that you expect an evolved genotype to be at at some time in the future and so that's the initial frequency of that evolved genotype so maybe it's just one cell in the population or maybe it's 10 cells in the population but whatever that frequency is you start out with this Um, and then you have to also plug in two more numbers this is the doubling time of the evolved and the doubling time of the ancestor Um, we started out to get this equation by saying okay The frequency of the evolved at any time, at a time point t, is going to be the number of the evolved, the number of cells of the evolved, divided by the number of cells of the evolved plus the number of cells of the ancestor. And so from there, you then can go through all of these different calculations. So you get this expression where you want to predict what the frequency of the evolved is in the future and that's dependent on just three variables. Initial frequency, how fast it grows, and how fast the uh, ancestor grows. So this equation here looks very complex. It's actually pretty simple. Um, I I usually each year I have students memorize all of the equations from the class. This year is different because we're going to be taking exams at home. Um, so I am gonna let you guys have a cheat sheet during your exams, Um, so you don't have to memorize the equations, but I would suggest that while you're studying to memorize the equations, and the reason is um, that in memorizing the equations, you really begin to understand how different variables relate to each other, and that helps you understand how the process actually works, how evolution actually works. The one exception to that rule is in this course is this equation here. The the form of the equation is so complicated That it doesn't give you a real intuition for how these things work um, And so I would never make a student uh, Memorize this equation, but the other equations I would suggest memorizing because they're simple enough That if you understand how they work, then you understand the, the overarching process that that equation is describing Okay, so here are just a note of the three variables you need in order to be able to predict the frequency of an evolved mutant in the future. Using this equation can kind of suck, it's pretty complicated. Um, But one of the the strategies to using the equation is once you make this calculation here, that calculation is repeated in the uh, denominator, and so save that number that is under the, the blue square and because you'll use that number down here as well. Um, and then once you get through that, then things really begin to come, become easy and uh, you can easily uh, use this equation. So here is an example of how to use this equation, okay? So I'm, saying, I'm, I'm starting out this with a description of what happened in a one-day experiment we can calculate the growth rate differences between an evolved cell versus an ancestor um, given this one day experiment. And then we can extrapolate what happens after 10 days. And so what we're doing is we're, we're calculating the growth rate evolved growth rate of ancestor, the doubling time of the evolved doubling time of the ancestor. Uh, and then the new thing that we have to calculate is the, frequency of the the evolved um, in the beginning of the experiment and that's just the number of evolved cells divided by the to- total number of cells. So that's just 1,000 cells um, uh, divided by um, 1,000 plus 100,000 cells and that gives us 0.0099. Okay, so these three things are what we need to solve this equation. We just plug and chug and put them in. Um, if you have uh, problems sort of visualizing you know, what's going on in this equation, um, putting in the numbers really helps you uh, see how it works and how to solve for the equation. And then you get this number that is uh, actually broke my calculator, but it's not quite one. It's very, 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 very close to one. Um, my calculator did not have enough significant digits to actually write out all of the nines. Um, But it's 99999 for a long time, so very close to one. Uh, And so what this means is that um, even though the the evolved one starts out with so few cells uh, compared to the evolved one, um, just in a matter of 10 days, the evolved one will um, outcompete the ancestor uh, and reach 100% of the population. So if this population was infinitely large it would never reach 100 percent it would just get closer and closer and closer and closer to one so the limit would be one um, but we have populations that have specific sizes and so once you get to 0.999999999, but you only have a thousand cells in that population well that means that now all 1000 cells are the evolved um, genotype Okay, so even though it's just 10 days and even though it started out with su- at such a disadvantage, um, the evolved one was able to wipe out the ancestor. And this makes sense given the relative fitness and given, uh, so given the ratio of this growth rate to this growth rate. Um, basically, it's three times faster at growing the evolved one than the ancestor. This is an extraordinary uh, large fitness advantage and so it can wipe out the ancestral population within just days. So here is a slide that just summarizes um, all of these uh, different equations. This is for your studying, and you can look over everything, um, but um, this is just for your reference. I'm not gonna walk through each and every one. So now, That is basically what we're gonna learn about natural selection today, but I wanna talk a little bit about natural selection and how it interacts with things like neutral genetic drift and how it interacts with uh, mutation rates. So first, starting out with neutral genetic drift, I wanna say that the role of drift and the role of natural selection, um, the importance of the role of the two of them trades off based on population size. So drift is really effective at small population sizes and can even overwhelm the forces of natural selection. And natural selection at large population sizes just takes over and works very efficiently. And so what I mean when when they're competing or when they're sort of uh, working together is I want to assess sort of which one dominates the change in frequency of an allele over time. So, in small population sizes, drift dominates, really causes massive fluctuations in the allele frequency. Um, however, in large populations, natural selection um, promotes the better allele and drives it to fixation very efficiently and very rapidly. So, I want to just go over uh, simulations from this um, this online simulator that we've talked about before. There's more advanced simulations where you not just have. Genetic drift, but you also have um, selection acting on the population. And so here is uh, just an output from, from that website that I did a, ahead of time, um, where we have um, the, the display is a little bit more complex than before, where we have a purple trajectory. And so this purple trajectory uh, describes the allele dynamics in a population size that is infinitely large. Uh, So there's no genetic drift, there's only selection. So this is what we would expect to see if there's no genetic drift. But there is genetic drift in this simulation because we are using a smaller population size and infinity. And uh, so we see that there's lots of oscillations uh, and fluctuations, and that we don't get this sort of smooth, nice trajectory that you expect with just selection. Um, we see that under this population size and under these conditions, uh, that actually, even though the red allele is beneficial over the blue allele, um, it doesn't always reach fixation. It mostly does. Seven out of 10 times it does, but three out of 10 times because of random stochastic reasons driven by genetic drift, these alleles drop down, um, in the population, um, so sorry, my dog just walked in the room and jumped behind me. I'll show you, um, let me take take a second to actually uh, share my video. and show you Wrigley. So if you ever hear some crazy uh, noise, that's Wrigley. Uh, she likes to sleep on the guest bed um, and she likes to nap next to me when I'm giving lectures. Uh, she is a mix of a pit bull and a poodle, and a lot of other different dogs. Uh, she is we of course, being nerds had her genome sequenced uh, so that we could see what breeds she was. Uh, we rescued her a couple years ago from the Humane Society okay, so back to sharing my screen okay back to back to science um, and not dog genomics um, so how to um, how to interpret what's going on here so um, let's look at the variables that we uh, input into our simulation in order to get these dynamics. Um, so this is the same variable as we saw before when we were looking at neutral evolution. It's just the, the frequency of the red allele in the beginning of the experiment, so that's why it's at 50% here. Um, the number of haploid individuals is the population size, it was a relatively small population size. That's why we see a lot of this drift. Um, the red allele now, these are new fields. The red allele is a relative fitness value of one, whereas the blue allele has been, it's slightly negative fitness of 0.99. So it has a has a deleterious mutation in it that just made it drop down by 1%. Um, but that 1% projected out over many generations means that uh it is likely certainly it is it's certain in uh infinite populations to to go away um and it is even likely in small populations that the red allele will dominate and fix over the blue allele um, the generations just determines how long the simulation is and the, the x-axis And then number of replicates, I have 10 in here. That's why we have 10 different red lines jumping around. Those are 10 different instances of the simulation. Okay, so um, next what I did is I dropped the population size down even lower. I also changed the the x-axis so that we can zoom in on these early dynamics um, because the population size is so low that the red allele either fixes or goes extinct very rapidly due to these really wild fluctuations caused by genetic drift. And in this scenario, we see one, two, three, four, uh, uh, instances of the simulation resulted in the beneficial red allele, uh, dropping down and getting lost from the population. Six of 10, uh, actually yielded a, um, uh, uh, the red allele fixing. Uh, so there does seem maybe there's a little bit of bias to which allele can, can fix. Uh, that's caused by the selection, but it's really subtle, and a whole lot of the, um, the red alleles in the simulations were lost. So nat- natural selection is not dominating in this regime as much as neutral genetic drift. So then let's ask the question of how large does a population have to be until it is large enough that the outcome of the red allele fixing uh, is inevitable, that the red allele will fix, uh, where neutral genetic drift is not having that large of an effect on the result of fixation. It may have an effect on driving these short-term fluctuations the frequency of the allele but not on the outcome of whether or not you get extinction versus fixation and so in this simulation we have 500 individuals and we see that we have um, 100 replicate populations so lots and lots of simulations and actually we find that even with 500 individuals we have one replicate population that uh, goes to extinction and so still you know, the, the result here of red allele fixing is somewhat contingent on, um, on stochastic genetic drift and not just determined by natural selection for the red allele. So then if we increase the population size to 1,000, we begin to see, you know, much less stochasticity in the dynamics and that all of the 100 populations yielded a fixation of the red allele. If we increase our number of replicates to a thousand, really, you know, giving lots of individual opportunities to uh, for stochastic drift to drive one of these replicate uh, populations, the red allele to extinction, um, we find that none of the none of the thousand uh, actually led to extinction. We do see it still has an effect on the dynamics, but the outcome of fixing. The red allele is all the same in these thousand replicate populations, so around one thousand I would say, given a one percent fitness difference uh, in these in these genotypes um, is the population size where really the outcome is mostly determined by selection and not drift. Drift has a role it has a role in shaping the evolution of any finite population, but its role becomes less and less and really not that important after you get above like a 1,000 or 10,000 individuals. Okay, so this last bit of the lecture, what I wanna talk about is um, the rate of adaptation given not just selection, but also the rate of uh, new mutations being influxed into the population. And how those new mutations, some of them are going to be adaptive, and the rate at which you get these new mutations, uh, and how big of a fitness effect they have, will influence your rate of adaptation. So this is similar to us talking about sort of the the neutral rate of fix of um, substitution uh, for the neutral theory. This is now a theory uh, that talks about the rate of adaptation based on a bunch of other um, a bunch based on selection and and mutation and so forth. So this equation is much more complicated than the neutral equation, there's a lot more going on. Um, And I like this equation because it just puts together a bunch of different bits from the course that we've learned so far. And so um, in this equation we have rate of adaptation, that's rate of fitness increase through time. Um, And it's dependent on the population size, the number of locations in the genome that yield an adaptive mutation, the rate at which mutations occur in the genome, and then also the selective benefit of those mutations. And here, this is the average selective benefit. I'm going to move on now and dissect each one of these variables, what they are and how they work together to increase the rate of adaptation. So, population size is pretty straightforward. Think of this equation as applying to populations that are larger than a thousand or larger than ten thousand. So, where genetic drift is not playing much of a role anymore, where at, at adaptation by natural selection is really driving. Um, the evolution of beneficial mutations. And so uh, for here, we're we're just focusing on on evolution by natural selection, not drift. And so the population size has a very straightforward effect. Um, In a small population size, you have very few mutations, whereas in a large population size, you have lots and lots and lots of mutations. And so you have lots of potential for those mutations to be beneficial and to drive adaptation. The next is the number of genomic targets uh, of selection or the number of genomic targets that if they mutate, they yield a beneficial mutation. And so if you have few genomic targets, then you're going to have few opportunities to get beneficial mutations. If you have many genomic targets, then you'll have lots of opportunities to get beneficial mutations. If your um, mutation rate is relatively slow, then you won't generate too many mutations and those mutations, you won't be able to access those beneficial mutations. Whereas if you have a slightly larger mutation rate, then you can access a lot of those beneficial mutations much faster. Um, And we actually saw empirical evidence that increasing the mutation rate can accelerate the rate of adaptation in that experiment, that long-term evolution experiment by Rich Lensky, that hypermutator line. was uh, yielded a population increase in fitness much faster than the non the normal level of mutation rates and then this last variable is kind of the hardest to conceive it's the average selection coefficient of beneficial mutations and so it's really focusing on the mutations that occur out here in this distribution and if you have um, maybe an organism that's not really well adapted to its environment, and so it has lots of ways to improve its fitness. Um, that will change the the L number, lots of ways to improve the fitness. But among those ways, if you also have um, uh, mutations that have much stronger beneficial effects the mutations out here, then on average, when a cell or a virus gets that mutation it's going to really supercharge its fitness and it's going to accelerate the rate of adaptation so all together these variables so this one this one and this one are all about the supply of beneficial mutations and then this selection out here is how beneficial those mutations are on average and then those combined together to give you the rate of adaptation so to summarize this lecture, there are mutations, not all mutations are created equally, and there are a variety of different effects from, by mutations, and you can have deleterious effects or beneficial effects or neutral effects. Uh, so just picture that, that distribution of fitness effects um, when you're thinking about the, how mutations can, can vary. Experimental evolution is a powerful tool to study adaptation. Uh, Microbial competition experiments uh, allow us a way to directly measure Darwinian fitness. With those measurements of Darwinian fitness, we can actually predict evolutionary dynamics. And lastly, we talked about the differences or how genetic drift and selection work and interact with each other. Drift dominates at low population sizes, selection dominates at high population sizes. And then we went over this equation that. Not, not thinking about drift, just thinking about natural selection and the supply of uh, adaptive mutations. How can we predict the rate of adaptation of populations? So with that, I want to thank you guys again. See you guys all on Thursday. And you can say bye to Wrigley. That's what she does most of the day, just napping. Pretty jealous of Wrigley.